In this episode of Over the Bonnet, I get to sit down with a Vietnam veteran that fought in the infamous Battle of Long Tan. Laurie Drinkwater was the section commander in D Company where 108 Australian soldiers defied the odds when faced with a regimental North Vietnamese force of up to 2,500 men. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Laurie Drinkwater, thanks so much for joining us over the bonnet. Uh, you're welcome, Mark. Four generations of military history in your family. Where did it all start for your family? Uh, well, in my father, um, he went away and joined up uh, when uh, the Second World War was on. Um, he joined up when Australia was threatened by the Japanese, like a lot of young fellows did. Uh, they didn't go to Europe. They probably thought that was somewhere else. But uh, when it looked like Australia was uh, going to be invaded, that's when a lot of people joined up. And that's where my dad got into the army then. So do you know much about what happened to him while he was in the forces? Uh, only I know that he served in uh, Borneo. Did he talk to you much about it? Uh, not a great deal, no. You joined the army. What was the motivation for joining the army in the first place? Well, uh, I was brought up, after Dad come home, uh, I was everything happened around the RSL. Uh, we had family days out, so all Dad's mates were all ex-servicemen, and I got into that service way of thinking. And uh, then um, I left school when I was 15. I started working at a few different places, and all, just about everybody then, were ex-servicemen, the older people were ex-servicemen, and they used to tell me these stories, and... Um, I think that I just it was I was going to be a soldier no matter what happened and uh, one day I just got the bug and I was 17 and uh, I went down and I joined up. What did your dad think about you joining the army? <laughs> he thought it was great actually <laughs> because um, it was the bodgy and widgy era and I was starting to dress a bit funny as far as he was concerned and I think he was glad to see me put a uniform on and not uh, the the dress that we wore in that era. Did he give you more respect for the fact that once you joined the army? It certainly, certainly changed our relationship. I wasn't getting on really well with him uh, on account of the different ways the the world was traveling at that time you know we were younger people had some funny ideas and um yeah we become really good mates after that and uh yeah it was great when did the relationship start to develop as soon as you signed up yeah yeah i'd say so as soon as i went although he he did say to me when i was uh, leaving for Kapuka, he said you'll never make it <laughs> <laughs> So going through boot camp, do you remember much about it? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
at uh, Kapuka or uh, down near Wagga. Um, yeah, I remember all of it. I remember it was a bit of a culture shock, but uh, I didn't seem to have much problem with it. Uh, no, yeah, I was quite good actually. How'd you fit in? Great, great. I was friends with everybody. We were all mates, and uh, no, it was great. I know that a lot of people, the guys that they go to rookies with, they uh, they form a bond and a very tight bond. How was the one that you formed with your other colleagues and other rookies? Uh, a few of them uh, I stayed friends with uh, for the rest of my life, uh, actually. But then again, a lot of them went their different ways. They went to different cores and, and lost track of them and you might meet them few years later somewhere along the line and you say good day but uh, the ones that went to the same corps the infantry uh, and you and a few of them actually we stayed together for quite a few years but that always stayed a real friendship yeah. so you've joined the army was it always going to be the infantry uh, I think so. Uh, I went in, when I first went in, I went in with an open mind that there was plenty of different things you could do and um, I was just going to finish my basic training and then make up my mind from then on and then been, and during that course of the three months that we were there I'd made up my mind well into it that I was going to be an infantry soldier. How good a shot were you? I was pretty good yeah I yeah I uh, I don't want to boast too much <laughs> but uh, I was better than average. Did you have any other uh, experience w with guns before that before you'd gone into the army? Oh yeah during the war um, uh, I'd, I was brought up uh, in the bush with my grandparents and uh, I spent a lot of time with them even after dad come home from the army I spent a lot of time uh, living with them up uh, up in the bush and, uh, and I'd say it was right out and there was a stack of rabbits in those days and everybody had a 22 and so yeah I, I knew how to shoot before I went in Whereabouts were they? A uh, place called Mount George. You wouldn't have heard of it. It's um, up near Tarry in New South Wales. Good times with your grandparents? Yeah, loved them. Yeah, yeah, great. So you had a great relationship with your grandparents and then why didn't you have the relationship with your father? Do you, did you understand it? Uh, uh, now I look back, uh, Dad died very early age. Uh, he contracted uh, asthma through the army. He'd got typhoid and that. And uh, um, when I look back now, I think that Dad had PTSD. Big, but nobody ever knew what PTSD was at those days. Well, I think they called it shell shock, but no one really talked yeah, about it. Yeah, I just saw Dad drank a lot, and that he, because he liked it, but. Uh, now I look back and I can diagnose what's happened to myself and a lot of a lot of my mates. That uh, yeah, a lot of 
a lot of old soldiers had PTSD and we never knew about it. And they never got paid any compensation or anything. So you've moved into the infantry. So what was the experience like when you started as a regular soldier? Um, I no, I just I was a soldier and and that was it. Where were you based first up? Uh, well, I left Kapuka. Uh, I went to Ingleburn to do the infantry training. I. And then from you do about three months or so there, and then you go off to your regular unit. And I went uh, to Holsworthy in Sydney, and I stayed there uh, for a few years. And uh, then we were uh, uh, told we were going to Malaya, and went to Malaya for two years in Malacca, and uh, then come back home to. In uh, Anogra and spent a couple of years there and then to Vietnam. Talk us through some of the things that were happening in Malaya at that stage. Uh, I always say Malaya was uh, the best two years of my life. It, um, the confrontation had more or less finished. Uh, the war was over there and all we done uh, every now and again we'd go up to the Thai Malay border because there was, they were still operating up there but they didn't really want to fight. They were, uh, we had a couple of contacts but they would run straight away because it was just over for them. And, uh, but two years in Malaya was terrific for me. I, I liked it very much. I liked Although we worked very, very hard while we were out in the, in the jungle doing exercises and on operations, um, but when we were back in the barracks, it was good. You lived, you had sheets and you had uh, people to do your washing and ironing and clean your boots and... Uh, um, it was, it was great. Yeah. So that was 61 to 63. Yes. So you've come back, you're stationed at Anogra. Were you looking towards what would happen in the future from there after a tour in Malaya? Uh, well, we knew that we were probably going to go to Vietnam. Be in Vietnam had just started more. Although the training, we'd been sending training team blokes there since 1962, uh, then we realised that eventually we would finish up in Vietnam. And we'd done a lot of training uh, in Australia to prepare us for Vietnam. What sort of training, what sort of things were you doing that was setting it aside to aim at the, the Vietnam experience? Uh, we were just normal um, um, contact drills and marches and uh, just basically what a soldier does every day and every night. And we'd just we'd go out 
on uh, a Monday morning out the bush and stay out there till Friday afternoon, come back in, have the weekend, then go straight back out again. And uh, we just kept that up for ages and ages. And then when we were warned out for Vietnam and we knew that we were definitely going, then the intensity uh, started with section training, platoon training, company, and working right up to battalion and big exercises. So it was a lot of training before we went. Did you know much about Vietnam? Well, did you know much about Malaysia before you went there? Uh, yeah, well, I did because uh, I had a lot of mates that I'd served with in Holsworthy that had already done a tour of Malaya and I got all the info off them. In fact, I probably uh, knew as much as about Malaya before I got there than uh, I learnt while I was there. How about Vietnam then? Did you know much about that? Uh, we'd been... We used to get a lot of lectures uh, on what it was like and that, but uh, I don't think anybody really knew what we were going to be up against. Uh, I know that a lot of the higher ranks were under the impression that we were going to go and do another Malaya, uh, where the Viet Cong were a different kettle of fish than the communist terrorists in Malaya. What were your thoughts, and did you think that you would get a similar sort of... Uh experience to what you'd got in Malaya? Um, I was sort of open-minded. I did know that, I, I said, no, they, what I'd heard and that it was going to be a lot more intense. It wasn't just going to be that walk around the jungle. Um, uh, no, I thought that the, it, yeah, it was going to be d different, but I didn't expect it to be quite what it was until I got there. Stepping off the plane, what were your first impressions? Um, well, because I'd been to Malaya before, um, uh, into another uh, tropical country, I knew everybody that hadn't been to a tropical country, you'd also, oh, the heat, you know, <laughs> I knew what was going to happen. But uh, when I got to Tonsonood Airport, uh, it was just amazing the amount of equipment that the Americans had and and people were running around it looked I actually I thought it looks like an ant's nest and nobody knows where they're going you know <laughs> people are just going everywhere yeah it was a bit of a culture shock actually the jungle that uh, you experienced in <coughs> Vietnam how did it compare to Malaya oh uh, I don't know. Uh, the Malay jungle was completely different than than what we come across in uh, Vietnam. The jungle in Vietnam, how did it compare to Malaysia or Malaya? Uh, quite different, actually. For where we were at Nui Dat uh, was uh, a different um, uh, topography than what we had in what we worked with in Malaysia, or Malaya, as we called it. Um, 
uh, where we were was a lot of uh, plantations and rice paddies, uh, rubber, and that where Malaya, uh, there was a lot of rubber in Malaya too, but um, there was a lot of jungle. And I think the hills were steeper in Malaya. They seem to be to me. <laughs> so you've uh, you've hit the ground. You're starting to get your um, basically get your feet dirty in in Vietnam. What was sort of happening on a daily basis? Oh, um, uh, while we were weren't on patrols or anything, while we were in base. Uh, it was just a matter of uh, uh, getting up in the morning. Um, there's 101 different jobs that you've got to do. You've got to clean your weapons. You've got to just maintenance your gear. Uh, there was You'd be sent somewhere to do other jobs. Uh, that, uh, and when we got there, uh, we were the first into that area um, we had to do the uh, uh, dig the pits, the command post, and uh, because we just walked into a um, a virgin rubber plantation with nothing there at all, and we had to make the task force uh, from nothing to uh, yeah. So there was a real lot of work to be done, and then. You have your patrols to go out, um, all different sorts of fighting patrols, uh, um, clearing patrols, standing patrols, and uh, yeah, there's um, 101 things to do, and and you never got enough blokes to do it. <laughs> That's, were there just Australian soldiers or were, were the Americans and other international soldiers there as well? No, when I got there, we went into uh, one ALSG, Australian Logistics um, uh, Group. Um, that was all Australians. Of course, there was a... Uh, we do... You would see Yanks and that around, but... We went into that area at Nui Dat as an Australian group. Did you have much interaction with the US forces? How did you get on with them? Personally, I didn't. No. Um, no, I, I didn't have a great deal, except when maybe uh, you might meet them if you got a day's leave down at Bungtown. But uh, as in the field... You might run into a patrol or something, but not, we didn't. No, I didn't, actually. Just talk us through the experience as you're starting to build up and you're, you're, working, you're working pretty hard. So how is it different to Malaya where you say that's the best two years of your life, oh. then you've hit Vietnam? How does it compare? Why is it Malaya was the best two years and Vietnam was different? Well, Malaya, we were living in a a barracks uh, with buildings, um, sheets, um, proper, uh, 
it was, uh, you know, built, it was, uh, in fact, in Malaya, the married people took their wives and kids with them. And they all in the one base, they had married quarters, had covered miles and miles. Uh, whereas, uh, it was just like living in Australia. Um, whereas Vietnam, you were living in the mud and the slush and, and uh, you know, it was completely different altogether. What did you do for entertainment? <laughs> there was, in Vietnam, there was no entertainment. You might get a, uh, a concert party, come to visit the camp and put on a show for a couple of hours, but there was no entertainment. Was, you, you get a couple of cans of beer a day to start off with. Later on, they'd open the canteen for a couple of hours, but there was no entertainment. So it was tough. It was. It was. Yeah, it was very tough. It was. What were your thoughts, though, then going through this and living, you know, in a pretty tough um, army lifestyle? What were your thoughts at this stage on what you'd signed up for? Um, you were. You were just taught to accept the fact that that's what you've got, and uh, you make the best of it. And uh, I don't think I sat down and pondered about. Uh, how bad it was, or you didn't get a lot of time to sit around thinking about much at all. There was always something to be done. You were digging holes, and and uh, when you weren't working flat out, you were trying to get a bit of sleep. Were you glad that you'd done all the work when things started to ramp up a little bit, that you'd done the work in preparation? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, it's always good to look back and say, when, you, when you're doing these exercises in Australia and everything, you're complaining about how hard it is and everything, but when you do put it into uh, perspective and you're doing it, then you say, well, I'm glad I've done all that at home because I know what I've, I've got to do now. How big was the base that you were on and how many soldiers were there that you were working with? Oh, uh, the whole base was thousands look I wouldn't know there was when we were there there was two infantry battalions which is probably about 800,000 people in each battalion then you've got your artillery or your logistic support group uh, I don't know must be thousands and then after us there was another battalion so they had three battalions so it was a pretty big camp compared to us uh, for Australians but compared to what Americans used to have was we were just a drop in the ocean. Were you surprised that they were so big? The Americans? Mm. Oh no not really because I'd read and I'd seen movies and different things I knew what they had and that but um, personally, I didn't think a lot about them. I, you, you only think about yourself and that little job that you've got to do. You've, you don't get much time to sit around thinking about other things. You've got so much to do, especially in a war zone like Vietnam. 
all I used to get worried about was that uh, they wouldn't send us uh, mail, the posties went on strike, the wharfies wouldn't send things, and then when the, they did start sending things, the wharfies would knock it off, and uh, I, that was the only political thing that I used to get worried about was the things that uh, uh, were affecting me personally. Uh, I was not a political person, I uh, used to just worried about um, uh, the wa uh, the wharfies wouldn't uh, load uh, supplies, uh, the um, uh, posties wouldn't send us mail, and uh, actually we uh, they'd sent out the little cartoons at times, and when you get home, punch a postie and uh, or wallop a wharfie. <laughs> uh, but uh, as far as uh, who was in power, I didn't. That didn't uh, go through my mind too much about who was running the country or who was not, because I had another job to do. And as I said before, uh, you don't get a lot of time to sit around and ponder all these things. How important was this mail from home for you? Oh, very important. Yeah. Uh, to me, it was an, another thing, but to a lot of the younger soldiers, and especially the national servicemen, they really relied on it for morale. How was morale at this stage? I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I got no... Uh, uh, there was... There was uh, fights and arguments between blokes, but that's just normal when blokes are together and uh, and especially when everybody's uh, um, you know so highly strung and and you could die within a minute and uh, so yeah everybody's on edge and but uh, the mail was pretty good i think what sort of things were you looking out for in the mail um just a word from home that was mainly what it was uh sometimes uh, we would get uh, blokes would get uh, things sent from their girlfriends or their parents, uh, food, extra food, because we're always hungry, because uh, you, you couldn't just go down to the shop and buy a pizza or anything <laughs> if you got hungry. You, only had, you could only have what you were issued, and uh, it never seemed to be enough, because when you're working hard, you're burning energy, and uh, I, I, me, I always seem to be hungry, and... Uh, yeah, so packages from home were a big morale booster for a lot of people, but, uh, yeah. When did you get your first contact? My first contact, uh, I was probably there, oh, a couple of months or something, uh, a month and a half before, uh, well, it was a contact. It was somebody firing at us, but from a distance away, and he was more or less just taking a pot shot to let us know that they were around or something, I don't know. But uh, a real contact, um, personally, not until long tan itself. And, uh, but there was probably a couple of hundred yards away there might have been a contact with another group, uh, but you don't really call it yours, it's somebody else's, you know. 
So it's it's a strange thing to to say that yeah, you don't you don't you don't have a you don't have a firefight every time you walk outside the wire. You might just patrol for days and days on end and not see anybody, not do nothing, just walking and walking. But uh, yeah, when you have a contact, that's a shot fired at you, and you go into a um, a drill. And by the time you get there to where the shot was fired, nine times out of ten, he's gone or they're gone. And uh, they... Uh, it's, it's all in tactics. How stressful was it then to be getting that sort of situation where you get there, they're not there? Ah, well, that's very stressful, especially if one of your blokes get... Uh, wounded or something and then you go through and you don't get any result um, but all I'm trying to say is that you're trained for these you're so trained in what you do it all becomes a drill uh, it happens and uh, you're not gonna you know jump up and down in the air because something went the wrong way or whatever, you know, it's, it's just it's just soldiering. And that's what you do in Australia. You train for this all the time. So when it really happens, you, you know what to do. How was it developing the relationships with the other guys in your unit with the fact that you are on the ground and... These are pretty stressful times. Uh, well, um, that is the main thing with, I think, goes back to the First World War with Australian soldiers. They always seem to uh, bond well and your mate is the, uh, the best thing that you have got and you are the best thing that he's got because you are there to protect him, he's there to protect you, and that's why the Australian soldiers have always been noted for their mateship, their loyalty to each other, and they die for each other, and that is what it is. Let's move on to Long Tan. The Battle of Long Tan was the most savage battle of the Vietnam conflict. Can you talk us through what happened on the day? Um, well, the night before, the task force had been mortared and um, we'd already had people, some of our battalion already out in the field and they would look and they were looking for the mortar base plate position. Um, they B Company had found it and because uh, we'd returned fire with uh, artillery and it looked like we'd hit the uh, the crew because there was blood and clothes and that laying around. So D Company was told to get ready, pack up, to go out to relieve B Company because they'd been out a couple of days and they were coming back in. And we were told to go and relieve them and follow on. And that's what we did. We 
we met B Company, we had a cup of tea, we shook hands and they headed back towards uh, the task force uh, and then we carried on the follow-up. And it wasn't long after we left B Company, or B Company had left us, that uh, uh, the forward uh, platoon had a contact with a couple of enemy walking down the track. And, um, well, they found a weapon. He dropped his weapon. They looked like they'd wounded one bloke and uh, he dropped his weapon and his mates had carried him off. But that's what it looks like. So that four platoon followed up, which you do. You follow up because we weren't we weren't expecting a great deal. We just thought it was a patrol that we'd hit. And then the four platoon followed up and um, then they run into the main force. And then from then on, the battle was on. And then it revolved around about different things. Uh, tried to extract 11 platoon out. That was the platoon that done the main contact. Uh, they had to be extracted because they had lost a lot of blokes on that initial uh, contact. And it just went on for the next uh, four hours until it was over, yeah. What are your thoughts when you look back at it now? <laughs> well, we shouldn't have been sent out there at the, because we didn't know until a long time later that uh, the uh, brigade commander had already been told by intelligence that uh, a regiment was out there and uh, he sent a, a company out which was... Uh, not a very smart thing to do and uh, a lot of people are very not very happy with a few decisions that were made from the top do you still hold any feeling about that yes yes a lot of feeling um what can i say things happen the battle started what are you seeing around you when it actually all the contact started? Uh, it's it's uh, fun. You can see people out there. You're firing at them. Um, a lot goes blank. You, yeah. Uh, I remember back and. I can probably only remember a few things that happened and it was four hours or three and a half hours. But, yeah. I remember the artillery coming in very close, which was very scary. Um, uh, probably one thing that I do remember that um, I was pretty worried about weren't getting where we were on the perimeter we weren't getting a lot of information we didn't know whether um they were sending anybody out to relieve us or to help us or what was happening when ammunition started getting very low 
I started worrying um, and because my section, I was just continuously yelling out to my section how many rounds you got left, make sure everyone counts, you know, and uh, and when we started to get very low on them, I started to get very worried, yeah. And then when we did get a resupply, I sort of went, fool, thank God for that. Um, I remember big Jack Kirby, our CSM, uh, he should have got a VC that day for the way he got around to every man, run from every man to uh, just giving them uh, moral support and uh, cracking jokes and, you know, things like, you know, saying silly things. And uh, he'd done a marvellous job and sadly that uh, he was killed a few months later by friendly fire, which was very sad. Should you have all got more recognition than you did? Um, that's hard to say. Um, I'm not very much on uh, medals and things because uh, sometimes I think that some medals are handed out to different people that probably did not deserve it. Other people, uh, yeah, uh, for the company itself, well, it took Australia 50-odd years or 50 years to recognise it. Well, when I say recognise it, to get any sort of decoration, the Americans gave us their highest decoration within two years. Um, the South Vietnamese government at the time gave us one within a week or so and uh, it took Australia that long to get round to... We were recognised, but after the battle itself, our company, when we come back to the task force headquarters, we were told that we were still part of the battalion and we weren't anything special and don't think that, you know, D Company is a special company. We are just part of the the battalion, which is fair enough because that's what we were. We were part of the battalion and we, weren't, we didn't want to be the elite or anything like that. So um, decorations and awards, mm, I don't know. Some people that got them deserved them. Others... May not have. They've done brave things, but they I'm just not wrapped in decorations and awards because I have seen not just Long Tan, but other units that have received decorations, people in these units. And, yeah, we might leave it at that, I think. <laughs> But it is one of the defining wars that, uh, or the defining battles of the Vietnam War. I just uh, wonder whether there should have been more recognition. Uh, when you say uh, a defining battle, um, if D Company had been wiped out that day, uh, I have the feeling that uh, Australia, they would have pulled Australians out of the war. Um, because we just can't afford to lose a company like that. And 
whereas uh, uh, the Americans don't even know what uh, long tan was. That's that's nothing to them. A battle like that says nothing to them. So um, uh, and it wasn't the biggest battle that uh, Australians uh, fought in. We actually lost more in Coral Balmoral, but that went on for a long time, weeks, and that where. Uh, our battle at Long Tan was um, the most intense and the most, we lost more in a short amount of time. And that's why uh, they look at Long Tan as the Australians' uh, battle of the Vietnam War. But uh, Coral and Balmoral. Uh, that doesn't get as much uh, uh, recognition than it should. It should get a lot more. Over the last few years, it seems to be getting more of a recognition, but uh, for years and years, nobody, even to, even in the army, they didn't talk much about it. It was always long tan because it was so, mu so uh, much on um, in a short amount of time and and uh, we were outnumbered so much and by all rules and regulations nobody should have survived no, no Australian should have survived they should have in fact if they knew we were only a company they could have walked over top of us within half an hour 20 minutes and wiped us out completely when you started uh, in the contact, in the, in the battle, did you know how many there were? Did you have any idea? No, no. In fact, it started out, we thought it was, uh, well, they surmised it was probably about a platoon. Then, uh, as things got a bit into the battle, then they, oh, no, that's it. No, this is probably a company now. And then, after that, then... It started to tweak with me when I heard the bugles playing. And they, the Viet Cong were using bugles to uh, rally their troops, and like in the old cavalry days. And and I thought to myself then, I thought, now they don't use bugles just for platoons and companies. It's you're talking regimental. Uh, strength when you start using them. That's when I started to get a bit worried. I'd done a couple of trips around the rosary beads then. <laughs> <laughs> How worried were you? Well, when you think you're going to die, you're, there's a very high possibility of dying, you do get worried, yeah. Uh, You don't let it get you that way where you can't work. You've got to do what you've got to do. And uh, so, yes, it's scary, yeah. Did it change you? I don't think so. Not change. made me think about my mortality a bit more than I used to, but I don't think that I... 
I changed in any way. I uh, I know that I had problem. I had more problems when I come home than I did to finish off the rest of my tour, because home was too much. Uh, what could I say? It wasn't. Uh, it didn't get the adrenaline rush that you got with when you're. Away. In the battle, I believe it was really torrential rain. Mm. Do you remember much about that? Well, that's one thing. You know, as I say, I was in Malaya before. I had seen some pretty good downpours in my two years in Malaya. But everybody will always say it's the the heaviest rain they've ever seen in their life. And... Uh, and there was thunder and lightning and it looks like the guys were really <laughs> playing up that day, you know. But uh, it was, yeah, it was really, really uh, heavy rain. The sort of thing that you were used to, was it commonplace? Well, it used to rain in the, in the tropics, it rains. Usually they say you can set your watch on four o'clock in the afternoon, bang, down, come down for... But this just this day just seemed to be whether it was in the mind or not. This day just seemed to be heavier than normal. The other soldiers in the unit, what were they? How were they experiencing it, and how were they dealing with what was going on? The guys that you had under your command. Yeah, well, uh, you only see you only see what's happening probably fifty yards either side of you. Um, that's if you're lucky. Uh, every, being a section commander, you've got to keep in touch with your blokes. Uh, uh, so you know that they're doing all right, and you, you're checking up on them to see whether they've got enough ammunition and uh, if they haven't been hit and all that. Uh, and to me, they were just doing the normal thing that they would have done on an on a contact at home in Australia when we were practicing. So uh, nobody was crying or spitting the dummy or anything like that. It was just like what we were doing what we were trying to do. It sounds like the training that you did do was terrific. That oh, it yeah. really kicked in. Yeah, and, and that's why all Australian soldiers are trained and uh, when they go away, they are fully trained before they go. You've hit contact. What do you? What actually goes through your mind? That's a hard one. Um, as I keep going back, you just do what you've been trained to do, and uh, and you're looking for a way to win that little do that you're in or it's uh yeah. yeah did it cement australia's reputation as a fighting force in vietnam oh well, i think the battle of long Tan, um uh, we did get a lot of more respect uh although the the americans uh always reckon that we were pretty good, you know, and they liked us. But I think the, the ones that found out about it, because, look, 
we had blokes in Americans uh, up north wouldn't have even heard about it. Uh, but the ones that were around us and the people that I met, uh, Americans I met, the when I was on leave later, uh, they respected you. But um, yeah, I, I think we we let them know. We let ev we let everybody know that uh, that we were capable of what we were sent to do. You talk about other battles that didn't get as much. Uh, notoriety. Why do you think then Long Tan has been singled out? Because of the, I believe, because it happened early in the piece when the task force went to uh, Nui Dat, because Nui Dat was only months old. Uh, and because of the sheer uh, weight of numbers that we were up against. And because to only lose 18 people when they estimate it could have been up to 2,500, uh, I think that's, that's why people looked at it as a, a very significant win. What did the North Vietnamese think, Ben, when they knew that there was only a, such a small number of Australians, 108? Oh, well, they didn't know until it was all over. If they knew at any time during that battle that there was only, well, when you say 108, uh, within an hour, there wasn't 108. You probably had around about uh, 60 that were fighter, you know, well enough to fight because the others were either dead or wounded. If they had known that, they wouldn't have held back. They would have just said, right, let's go and just walk straight through. And they would have walked straight through us. But they thought there was more of us. That was one thing that the Australians did. They kept spread out. Uh, you see American films where they're patrolling along and they're pretty close together. Uh, Australians have always kept well apart. So we covered a big area and uh, they probably thought, well, we've struck blokes over here and we moved, our platoons were moving around a bit and then we struck people over here They've covered that they must have at least a battalion. So they thought, I reckon, that they... So we don't know a lot because uh, they're, they're not going to tell us. The communists are not going to tell us what they thought or what happened. But I would say that they thought they were up at least against the battalion at least. But uh, as I say, if they'd known that there was only a few of us they just would have walked straight through the top of us, yeah. Resupply must have been a, a pretty uh, amazing moment. Well, yes. Um, without that... Re a lot of things fell into place that day. Without that resupply, uh, well, we would just wouldn't had nothing to fight with, uh, no ammunition. Uh, so um, that was vital. Um, 
the uh, APCs coming through at the end with uh, reinforcements, although they they struck a force that was up the back of us, but we don't know whether they were put they were going to put in an attack at the back or whether this was pretty late in the day. Uh, we do think that that force that the APC struck were actually withdrawing by the time because once the APCs hit them, had a little firefight with them, everything stopped. Wouldn't have shot fired after that. Everything went silent. So um, a lot of things went our way that day. We shouldn't have been there for the start. <laughs> when everything went silent, what were your thoughts? Um, well, what you normal normally think, you think, are they uh, are they regrouping to do another assault on us? Um, yes, it's just another thing that I get in. You go into training, what you were trained to do, and when we realised that probably, no, they're not going to put another assault in, we knew that we had wounded. It was dark, pitch dark. Uh, we knew that we had wounded and dead, but we had to get the wounded out as quick as possible so they wouldn't die overnight from their wounds. Then we uh, we had to move back to an LZ landing zone so the choppers could get in to take them out. So, uh, yeah, that's what happened in the night, because at, at the last shot of the battle, it just was on dark and everything was black as the ace of spades. You couldn't see nothing, so we had to get back to that LZ so we could get those blokes to hospital and um, and regroup, and then we went back in the next morning. How were you feeling at that stage? Pretty down because we had 11 people, I think it was, still out on the battlefield, our blokes, that we didn't know whether they were alive or dead. And uh, we just had to, everybody was thinking, well, the sooner we get back out there and find them, uh, if they are alive, which we, I personally didn't think they would be, uh, but if they were, well, we might have a chance of saving them. So that's, yeah, so we had to regroup, recharge the batteries and go back in again. So what happened on that day? Um, we went back into the battlefield, probably not expecting to find much and uh, hoping that we found some of our blokes alive. We found two that were still alive. Uh, that laid there all night and then the scene when we come across the dead, the enemy dead, the scene was horrific. Uh, there was bodies laying everywhere. They had been blown to pieces with the artillery that they'd put in there. Um, yeah, it was a pretty gruesome sight actually because there was... Uh, 
you know, not just nice, clean bullet wound. There was bits of arms and bits of legs and things hanging in the tree and, yeah. What was your first thought of when you looked at the battlefield of what had happened the previous day when you went back into it? What was your initial thought? Um, probably thinking, well, at least we can see a result with their dead. Um, it Well, myself... I tried to turn off as much as possible and say, well, it's a battlefield. I've seen plenty of movies and that, uh, documentaries, you know, like the Second World War, First World War, especially the First World War. So I'm looking at it as a battlefield and I'm still alive and thanking God that I was. But I felt very sorry for... Uh, the enemy, because I knew that they were soldiers, it's the same as I was. Uh, they were only doing what they were told to do and uh, they had a life at one time. They had probably wives, girlfriends, children, mothers and fathers, so they were human beings. How did you feel about the North Vietnamese at the time, though? Um, I probably didn't have... You say, oh, I hate those bastards and whatever, but do you really hate them? Or... They, were, they were soldiers. Same, a soldier respects another soldier and he was doing his job the same as I was doing mine. He would have killed me the same as I would have killed him. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, and my friends, we did not know, we didn't sit around and talk about, you know, we we just got on and done our job. Did you talk about the battle much after it when you got back to base? Not a lot. Not a lot. Why is that? I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, well, I, I don't think it was... We might mention something about long. Oh, yeah, that happened before long ten, or that happened after long ten. But uh, we didn't sit around and and uh, just talk about the battle. It was no. So, you, did you feel the need to decompress though from such a heavy contact? Uh, probably, probably would have been good if they uh, gave us some counselling like they do these days. But we no, we were, actually, were, as I think I said before, we were told uh, we weren't elite. Just get on, forget about what happened the other day. We've got another ten months to do here yet. And uh, yeah, I think yeah, I don't know. They gave us a couple of days leave to uh, go down and get on the grog and drink ourselves silly and uh, get rid of it that way. But and that was only a couple of days and then we were back into doing what we were doing last week. Do you think you guys were elite? Oh, we're told we were now. <laughs> uh, um, 
no, uh, after the, the next 10 months that we were there, everybody just got on and done their job and we didn't, uh, I didn't see anybody going to one of the other companies and saying, oh, I'm from D Company, you know, you should be rolling out the red carpet for me or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> but looking back now, and even at the time, did you think that your men that were under your command were elite? I always thought they were even before the battle. I always knew they were good soldiers. Um, I knew that we had pulled off something that uh, was pretty pretty special, but I didn't get round uh, shouting it from the highest hill. Why do you think it's taken 50-odd years to really get the recognition that the soldiers deserve? Uh, look. We, we had the recognition as soon as we got home. It was just uh, the Australian um, government just never got around to actually giving us anything that we could wear, uh, like the, the citation. You know, the Americans gave us one within two years. The South Vietnamese have given us one within a couple of weeks or so. Uh, but it took <laughs> Australia's always been the same with their their decorations and the wars. They're always never seen to now nowadays. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm wrong. In that era, when the imperial uh, medal situation was on, um, medals were a funny thing and. As I go back to, I'm not very in favour of medals, in it, but uh, yeah, uh, uh, I don't know why it took so long for them to recognise that battle with a citation. Um, I don't know. After the battle, what happened after that? We just carried on and done exactly the same as what we would have done if long time had never happened. We still went out on our uh, standing patrols, our ambushes at night, and we'd just done exactly the same as what we would have done if long had never happened. And um, yeah, and that was, we, as I say, we, we didn't get any special treatment or anything like that, no. Is it part of the Aussie psyche, though, that you're sort of like, uh talking yourself down to a degree because you guys really are, are heroes. Every black that puts a uniform on is a hero. Everybody, the 63,000 people that served in Vietnam are all heroes to me. Every man that served in, every man and woman that served in Afghanistan, Iraq, and all the, they're all heroes. Nobody is more a hero than, than the next bloke. It's just some blokes. It's an old saying, I am not a hero, but I serve with a few. <laughs> well, you did, and you know, um, you've said you've known Keith Payne pretty well. Yeah. Uh, is he a hero? Oh, yes, of course he's a hero. Look at he done, went out time and time again in the middle of the night, 
wounded and brought in 40 people that probably would have been murdered by the enemy. Uh, yes, as I say, everybody's a hero. Other people, uh, well, a lot of people do things and people don't see what they do. And they get nothing for it, they get no recognition. Other people, sometimes they hang a medal on them and they might have done something okay, but not great. So it is a personal thing what you do, but everybody's a hero to me. Everybody that served in the forces, they're all heroes. A lot of weight, as you've said to me, to for Keith Payne to carry. The cross. Yeah, he said once that uh, uh, the, I'll just forget how he put it, but he said the the Victoria Cross uh, after winning the Victoria Cross, the rest of his life he's got a heavier cross to bear, um, and that's by um, what he meant by that was. Because you become a celebrity and you've got to go and do things like this, <laughs> and and that's sometimes doing uh, interviews like this is harder than fighting a battle. What do you think about the current crop of VCs that we've got from uh, the war in the Middle East? Yeah, great, great blokes. I've met uh, I met them all, and just fleetingly. Uh, I've liked every one of them, and uh, yeah, I I think they're great blokes. Have they taken a lot of the pressure off Keith Payne? Do you think? Oh yes, yes, of course. Because Keith is, uh, I just forget what I. He must be eighty-seven, eighty-eight now, I suppose. He was in Korea, so that puts a uh, yeah. That would have taken a lot of his social commitments off him that uh, that he's had to do by himself for years and years. There's been a lot of changes with the theatre of engagement with war these days, with the woke period, as it were. What do you think about the changes, say, the problems that Ben Robert Smith has got? Um, I... I think it's terrible, actually, the way he's being treated. Um, um, it's look, I I can't say too much because uh, that will put me in a position. But what I think and what all my mates from Vietnam think is um, is really terrible what they're doing to him and uh, some of these people that are firing bullets at him they would not fire bullets out in the field themselves and uh, they've got a lot to answer for one day these people because they are stuffing up a good army or good service person because uh, uh, if you've got somebody that's going to join the forces and think, no, why, no, uh, I might uh, find another profession because 
if I do this one right, I'm only going to get uh, ridicule for doing what I've done was right. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't agree with what's happening with him. Um, uh, I feel very sorry for him and anybody that's put in that position. Is it a tall puppy syndrome thing, do you think? Oh, yes, of course. Yes. I think there's a rumour going around that there's a couple of people in his unit that didn't like him. So uh, now everybody's getting on the bandwagon. Let's move to um, then your granddaughter is also just joined the military, making up where we started, four generations. Yeah. Talk about the the four generations. How does that uh, unfold? Well, my father that we've already talked about in the uh, Second World War, Borneo, um, myself, uh, and everybody knows about me, and, uh, and my... Um, my nephew, that uh, he he learned his trade uh, with the aviation, with the helicopters. He now uh, he's done about seven years, I think. He's out now. He's a sales manager for Skoskovsky Helicopters. He's got a terrific job, uh, so he's been looked after well and uh, learned it all through the army. And uh, now she's come along. She's been in two years now. She's with the aviation uh, regiment in um, in Sydney, and her young brother, he is uh, past everything, and he goes in in February next year. How proud were you when you found out that she was going into the forces? Um, well, I knew that young Lawrence, that's her brother, I knew that he was always had the idea of joining up. And then out of the blue, one day she came and she said, I think I might go into the forces. Uh, she was working, had a pretty good job with Lorna Jane and uh, as an executive. And uh, I said, oh, that'd be good. And uh, she said, yeah, I might join the Army Reserve and go in as an officer. Then the next thing, she rings me and says, I've changed my mind. I thought, oh, yeah, that'd be right. She <laughs> says, I'm not going in the Army Reserve now. She says, I'm going to go into the uh, regular Army. And I was very proud of her, yeah, yeah. Because of the notoriety of Long Tan, you do do a lot of interviews and you do talk a lot. How much pressure is there on you to talk about it? Uh, when I first started being asked to talk about it, I, I used to, I only used to, yes and no and maybe, whatever. <laughs> but as you can see now, I do talk, I probably don't talk to... Uh, uh, literate but uh, I I do tend to uh, be able to sit down and uh, and talk without and put a sentence together without going hum and hire and, and I know it probably sounds on the the tape and that probably sounds like I, I mumble a bit but uh, at least I can do a few seconds in one stretch
Do you feel pressure to live up to the the memory of Long Tan? Ah, oh, yes. Um, my one of my grandsons said, uh, "Oh, you're going to do another interview or something." He says, "It's about time, you know. You're getting a bit old for this. About time you gave that away, aren't you?" And I said, "Well, I feel like." Um, I have a duty, like we were talking about Keith, uh, where uh, it is a duty to get things recorded so that uh, when I die, or when we all die, there is a uh, a record of people that were there and and for future history that... Um, will people will listen to in years to come following vietnam how did it affect you uh pretty bad i uh i was engaged when i come home i spent three days with my fiance I made an excuse that I better go down and see my parents. I went down to Sydney, see my parents, and did not go back. Um, had a lot of problem with uh, things in Australia. It was too quiet, and I didn't know. Um, I battled for a little while. I was going to be... A, um, a soldier, you know, for the rest of my life. I battled for a little while. After I came home in the army, I was due out. I didn't sign back up. I got out. Um, that was a, it. Was still on then that people were ridiculing the Vietnam veterans. I jumped on a ship actually and went to New Zealand and. Uh, I didn't tell anybody who I was. I just went to New Zealand and I lived there for five years. And I come back home. I was going to go back to New Zealand. I was going to fix up all my things in Australia, go back to New Zealand and stay there for the rest of my life. And uh, after five years of living there, I come back. I had a holiday on the Sunshine Coast. And I thought, uh, who wants to go back to New Zealand? It's nice and <laughs> nice and sunny here. So I stayed on. I stayed at the Sunshine Coast, and uh, then I finally got round to joining the Army Reserve. And I'd done another ten years with the Army Reserve, and. Uh, and then after I got out of the Army Reserve, uh, they asked me. Could I help with the uh, the cadets? And I went and uh, I joined the cadets for four years, and I trained cadets for four years. And uh, so I, all the troubles I was having, I think, going back in, although it was only reserve and cadets, I still got that feeling that I was a soldier again. And uh, then I got too old to do anything. <laughs> so now I'm retired. And Still troubled by it? Not that much anymore. I'm, I, 
every night I probably think about different things, but not like I used to be. I drank a hell of a lot, like normal people, not normal people, what most uh, soldiers suffer with PTSD, they usually use uh, alcohol as a medication, and um, I doing pretty well now. But yes, I visit my army very regular, especially when you put your head down to go to sleep at night. And at this stage of my life, I'm losing a lot of my old mates through old age, of course, you know. Oh, they do have things, but... And, uh, yeah, it's getting that way now that uh, I'll be going to see my maker shortly, I suppose. But, yes, I uh, haven't got too many of the old fellas left anymore. How is it when you get together these days? Well, we still laugh and joke and have our... We don't sit around crying in our beer. In fact, probably talk about the same thing over and over, but just mainly all the funny times. What's a funny time that really sticks out to you? Oh, well, it's a lot actually, but I, I can't put it on tape. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, there's this... Things that uh, that's happened during my lifetime, you know, in the forces that, uh, yeah, nothing really. It's just little funny things, you know. What are your thoughts on the fact the that you say the Vietnam veterans, the treatment that you got? What are your thoughts about that? Um, well, the. At the time, uh, I was very, very upset with it, uh, the way that the the public were treating the Vietnam, because they weren't taking it out on the politicians, they were taking it out on the soldiers, and, uh, and that, I thought that was very crazy. If you want to, you know, we didn't pay our own fare to go over there, somebody sent us over. Um, uh I do believe now that uh, everybody that were in that movement at the time look back and say, yeah, we got it wrong. Yeah. I know people that I've talked to that uh, that said, oh, yeah, they marched in the moratorium and and they were, and they, and they've actually said, I'm sorry. So we do get a lot of sorries and that's good. It makes up for it? Nothing could make up for it, but it helps. I remember when the first soldiers and came back from the war in the Gulf and they didn't know whether they were going to have another Vietnam. And I happened to be in the ship, the HMAS Sydney, I think it was, mm. coming back and they were asking me what sort of reaction that they got. And it was a sea of people in Darwin Harbour and there wasn't a dry eye in the bridge because there were some Vietnam veterans in the bridge. What was your thoughts when they got such a reaction when they came back from the Middle East? Uh, well, 
I've always said that uh, we've learned a hell of a lot from the Vietnam War. Everybody, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and the public, they've learned a lot that never treat your soldiers again the way they treated the Vietnam veterans because it's, you're getting more casualties after the war than you got during the war. They made a movie about the Battle of Long Tan, Danger Close. What do you think about the movie? Um, yeah, I I met the producers and the directors and I I went onto the set a few times. Actually, I took Abby, my granddaughter, down to a shoot one day. Um, the movie itself, I thought, was pretty good. It it covered what really happened. There are things in it, uh, personal things that didn't happen, but that's what you've got to put in a movie to make it uh, well to stop it from being boring, you know. <laughs> but uh, no, I was quite happy with the re- the end result all up. Yeah, you were played by an Afghanistan veteran. Yeah, Tim Weir. And you guys have uh, established quite a friendship. We have. It's uh, it's funny. Uh, I went down onto the set one day, and um, the producer came to me and he said, "Oh, by the way," he said, "the guy that's playing you is uh, on the set today." He says, "You'd like to meet him?" I, t- I said, "Of course I would." <laughs> so uh, I met him, and we went up and had lunch together. And he says well, we must get and have a beer together one day. So we made an arrangement to meet, and uh, from then on, we just... He's been to... Uh, he's been to a lot of my grandson's fights, uh, and I've been out and met his parents, and uh, he's got a partner now, and he's got a little boy, and, uh, yeah, we could... And he's living in New South Wales, and uh, but before the lockdown, uh, we used to see each other all the time. And uh, once the gates open again for the border, we'll probably do the same again. Yeah, and now we've made a really uh, bond together. Yeah. Did that surprise you that you got such a bond? Um, probably not really. Oh, I never thought about it, but uh, but now I think about it, I think. No, he was a soldier. Uh, he, I was a soldier. We're both soldiers, and and we know where we're coming from. Although there's what there's fifty years difference in age, but uh, we talk the same language. We like a beer. <laughs> yeah. So it must have been a real honour for him to meet you on the set. It was an honour for me to meet him. How long are you going to keep doing these sorts of interviews? And is it something that you will keep doing? I, I keep saying this will be the last one, <laughs> but every time I'm, I have trouble saying no, and I do feel like that I owe it to the people that uh, died at the battle and uh, keep their memory alive. And uh, I just think it's my job. 
There's a song about the Vietnam War, I Was Only 19. What are your thoughts when you hear that song? My thoughts? Uh, Did they capture it? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, but the song that, that really is, is uh, Nancy Sinatra, uh, These Boots Are Made For Walking. Because that was a hit when D Company first got together in Australia before we went over and and uh, you turn on the radio and you just hear that and we accepted that as the company song because we were the ones, it always seemed to be D Company that done the longest walks, you know. And, and uh, so that's the song that I sort of listen, that's in the movie too. But uh, the, yeah, the, uh, that, when I was only 19, where Frankie kicked the mine the day that mankind kicked the moon, well, that was from Six Battalion on the second tour, not on our one. But no, it could, uh, it's, uh, it's the one that everybody sort of recognises as the Vietnam War song, doesn't it? Because when you were heading out to, towards uh, go on patrol for uh, the Long Tan Battle, uh, there was a concert that you missed out on with uh, <laughs> Little Paddy and Cole Joy. What were your thoughts that you missed out? Well, everybody was pretty pissed off, actually, <laughs> <laughs> because we thought we didn't know we were going to go out. We we were all g'd up to go to the uh, the concert. And then when we were told that we were going to go out, and actually while we were going out the wire and halfway to the battlefield, we could still hear them practising in the, you know, the music in the background. And everybody was, oh, we're missing them. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for your service. And thank you for joining us today. So, Laurie Drinkwater, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Mark, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.